Welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of the Living for Today podcast, where we will explore the boundaries between reality and spirituality. I'll be your host, Brian Kurzak. In today's episode, I will be talking with Jim Norton, a retired Methodist minister, social advocate, and skilled counselor, about the dynamics of trauma and how its resolution affects our capacity to meditate and live effectively. Okay, so today um, I would like to take some time to talk about the idea of trauma and how trauma influences people's lives, Mm -hmm. but particularly around those times when people are having more space in their life, like when they start practicing meditation or if they take time away from their life and their work. Um, Because one thing I had noticed whenever um, a friend of mine would take people on retreat in Costa Rica, there was always this issue where they thought that they were going on retreat in this beautiful place to learn meditation. And then about Tuesday or Wednesday, maybe about a third of them would have a meltdown. Mm -hmm. And we, we watched that multiple times and we thought it was just a fluke. But then we started to realize that it seemed to be that the more space people had in their life and they weren't constantly running or distracting themselves um, with whatever it might be, then the stuff they hadn't dealt with came up. You know, some form of trauma or some form of... Um, it, it can be all sorts of things, really. Right. Right. Um, so I'm here with uh, Jim Norton today. Hello. Who's a retired Methodist minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, who has an interest in uh, mind-body experience and, I guess, psychological healing in that way. Does that seem accurate? Well, sounds good. Yeah. So just to give our listeners a little bit of background, um, do you mind describing what your, what your career was like, in a way, and what led you to the point where you're now interested in meditation and interested in this mind-body connection uh, with trauma and so on? Okay. Um, gosh, that that probably requires going back prior to the vocational choice. Um, uh, I am the product of an abusive family and community, having grown up in a government housing project, and uh, uh, and my parents were deaf, so. We were different, even in the project, uh, and therefore the subject of a lot of ridicule. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there was trauma both inside, (laughs) between me and my parents, uh, centering around uh, my gravitation to the hearing world uh, and their attempt to get me to be there negotiator between the hearing world and the silent world. A lot of conflict there with grocery store personnel, you know, bill collectors, that kind of thing. Um, Well, maybe that's enough about the very beginning. In in a way, the United Methodist Church uh, was my second parent. Uh, When I was six months old, an elderly gentleman by the name of Mr. Kaler uh, saw to it that my parents had me baptized. So on Palm Sunday of uh, 1942, uh, I was baptized. And then uh, he saw to it that my parents made sure I took advantage of Sunday school and those kinds of things. And this was a very wealthy uh, congregation. Uh, The inside walls are Italian marble. Uh, So here's this kid from the project uh, going to church at a place where only the influential go. And and that carried with it some stigma as well. Uh, (laughs) So it, it seemed that everywhere I went, there was always pointed out to me uh, the difference, uh, and and somehow or other, uh, I just didn't measure up. Uh, But the church uh, sent me to camp when I was 12 years old 
um, which is a critical time psychologically. You know, body chemistry is going crazy and, <laughs> and hormones and all of that stuff. And uh, one day at camp, uh, the counselors had us to find a place in the woods just by ourselves. And so I sat down against a tree and, uh, and had the sense of uh, uh, Jesus coming in a loving and tender way. Uh, and from that time on, uh, it was very natural for me to uh, uh, stay within the structure of the church. There, there were other conflicts through the years, especially the teenage years. I have some background in Pentecostal tradition, and that was confusing, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Uh, but finally ended up on a vocational path that took me into United Methodist Ministry, um, uh, um, seminary, and, and, and from there on the path seemed pretty well set. Right. Um, then through the years, uh, you know, one of the things that was easy to imagine prior to that vocational choice and the reason for the choice was that the church was a loving place mm -hmm. and, and that uh, my codependency and need for acceptance um, would be met. <laughs> I, I learned with my very first congregation <laughs> after seminary, well actually I learned it during student pastor days, that ain't necessarily so. <laughs> So the codependency wasn't met. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Correct. Okay. <laughs> uh, my wife and I married. I was a sophomore in college, and she was a freshman. And uh, so we went to Duke together. Um, uh, during the time of civil rights uh, confusion, um, and. Um, out of that, I think I developed a very strong uh, social justice stance, mm -hmm. which I have maintained through the years mm -hmm. uh, and still do. Um, but when the confusion would develop within congregations, unaware of what was happening, it would hook all of the past trauma, and that, that's the nature of the emotional brain, all of that stuff sticks. Uh -huh. And um, so <laughs> running into conflict in the church uh, really hooked all of the other garbage from the painful past and became very debilitating at times. So, so the stuff that you had dealt with previously that hadn't been processed right. whenever you'd have an issue with the church right. or in the church, it would kind of bring all that up. Exactly. And maybe you would respond yeah. inappropriately. Well, you w it wouldn't bring it up consciously. Right. Uh, but the emotional brain, all it knows how to do is to emote. And if something triggers that garbage, mm -hmm. uh, it makes the something seem like world-shattering because of all of the other stuff that's there. Uh, right. This... You know, this is the end of the world. This is, and 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 uh, it was hard not to react to that. Fortunately, Polly, my wife, has been a stabilizing influence through all of that, right. uh, and in some ways, I, I feel sorry for her. <laughs> uh, but she's she's been the stable person, and I've been through uh, different therapeutic modalities. And did my major work at Duke in pastoral psychology, followed that up with uh, um, some addictive um, training as, as well as family systems training. Right. Uh, so through my own therapy and, uh, and having focused primarily on psychological issues, um, I can understand what's going on, mm -hmm. uh, and that is some help, but the reactivity can happen um, unaware. And, and the most recent example of that was when um, Kavanaugh was 
elevated to the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. I went ballistic. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no way that <laughs> he is not guilty of, of what was, he was accused of. Uh, it was a very credible person who, who told the truth. Mm -hmm. and, and it hooked that stuff in my brain and, and words came out of my mouth that would embarrass a sailor. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I really had a meltdown. And, um, and since then, I was involved in some mind-body training um, through the Center for Mind-Body Medicine out of Washington, D.C. Uh, and I've been uh, struggling with that. Uh, but it's, it's better. Mm -hmm. uh, another part of uh, uh, the um, resolution uh, has been my involvement in a meditation group mm -hmm. and some of the readings we have been doing in common, uh, especially Ken Wilber's No Boundary. Mm -hmm. uh, his observations uh, about... <laughs> The only thing we have is the now, right. and and that everything exists in the now. Uh, when we allow the past uh, to get in the way of that, uh, uh, we we lose um, the sense of fulfillment that can come in the now. Uh, when we allow future expectations. Um, <laughs> one one thing I think that is common to people who graduate from seminary in the United Methodist tradition is that they are sure the world is waiting with bated breath for all that wisdom that they've acquired, and someday they may even become bishop. You know? <laughs> and, 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 and if you focus too much on that kind of future possibility, <laughs> once again you're doomed right. <laughs> for yeah. for conflict because the present never seems to right. um, entertain such possibilities. Yeah. Um, yesterday I was at Walmart. I'm sorry. Uh, I do shop at Walmart because of the prices. And we're and we're in West Virginia, so the nearest <laughs> the nearest Whole Foods store is two hours away. So we do our best. <laughs> And they do have some organic foods now and whatnot. Right. So. But there was a, a little boy in, a, in the cart. You know how parents put their children in one side of the cart. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I wasn't paying any attention. I was in line behind them getting ready to check out. And he made some loud noise. I was looking at the magazines in the racks and uh, at the checkout counter. And I, it startled me and I looked at him. <laughs> and I waved, and he waved, and we carried on this. He, he was 16 months old, uh -huh. I found out, but he had already had developed an interesting vocabulary. <laughs> and, and we just had the best time mm -hmm. playing with one another, uh, peekaboo, and while, while his dad was checking out the groceries. So, right. And, and, and it's moments like that that make everything okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That make everything okay. Right. And you can't really appreciate moments like that if you would have been all hooked into your past mm. emotional pain. You would yeah. have overlooked it. Would have That's right. By. Oh, who's that screaming kid? Right. <laughs> right. Get away from me, kid. <laughs> so, so I guess the best way to, to check out you, where you are with your emotional pain is just take a trip to Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> see how it goes. Well, sometimes the sights are a little yeah. <laughs> bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying nothing more about yeah. that. <laughs> That's good. Because <laughs> this is one of our pilot shows, so we'll see how it goes. Um, so when you've, when you've been doing work with individuals, um, and you've been seeing, for example, you, were, you, you worked with Melissa and I when we did our, our premarital counseling Correct. 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> it was a while ago. And... Um, when you when you see that, you know you have a a different kind of vantage point, 
So when you saw me responding to something, you saw Melissa responding to something, you know, I obviously thought that I knew that, that I was responding in a way that, that made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. When really, if there were conflicts in the relationship at that age, you know, when you're just mm-hmm. 19, 20 or so mm-hmm. on, um, usually your responses are coming from, or my responses, I would think, were coming from just past tr- triggers, mm-hmm. things that were not conscious. Correct. Um, and in, in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, there is a description of, of what the root cause of pain is. Mm. And it says the root cause of pain is the absence of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. The absence of self-awareness. And that I've contemplated that and I thought about it. And when people start getting involved in meditation or they start trying to improve their lives, oftentimes it, it is painful in the beginning because they have to develop that self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And then they become aware of all of those triggers. They become aware of all of those traumas. And some people can push it down and still try to move forward. Or they try to deal with it, but it's hard. Because there's a lot of input that has not been dealt with. That's right. So in your experience, when you, say, have worked with individuals, and you, you can see their triggers, but mm-hmm. they can't. Right. What, what, are some, like, what are some useful ways that you use to help encourage them to take a look at those things to kind of maybe pull them a little bit out of the emotional mm-hmm. brain such that they can develop right. greater self-awareness. Right. Any kind of tips or tricks there? Yeah. It, it's been different with uh, different people. Uh, my, my base uh, therapeutic method is uh, one developed by Carl Rogers, Rogerian, uh, client-centered therapy uh, and and its insistence uh, one of its tenets is that you follow the client you don't rush ahead of the client mm-hmm. uh, and it takes very careful listening uh, to begin to pick up the cues and and then you follow those um, uh, some some clients uh, have uh, absolutely refused to uh, uh, consider the possibility of, of hidden motivators mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and that 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 is a very long journey if if they stick with the process mm-hmm. uh, other clients have been more open uh, but it's still a pr- slow process it's it's like the Thin layers of an onion. You you can only peel them off very slowly and very carefully. It's a long process, which makes it inefficient from the DSM five uh, point of view, uh, and from most of the mental health uh, facilitators. Whatever. And those who don't know, those who don't know what the DSM five uh, is, mental. that's the handbook for disorders. In order to get insurance payment for services rendered, you have to be able to find a code in the DSM-5 of mental health disorders uh, in order to justify it. (laughs) But anyway, so you were saying that um, it's a gentle process that you have to go through. Right. And and it's it's inefficient. I have since learned that there are uh, techniques in body-mind medication, medicine um, that can uh, create some valuable shortcuts mm-hmm. um, and, and, and may be especially beneficial uh, to persons who are resistant to, to the more Freudian uh, approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, Family systems as well, looking at the dynamics of family life and, and, and pointing out how certain tendencies seem to occur, reoccur in each generation right. can be helpful. So people then at least have some tools by which they can decide, okay, do I want this to go on or not? In a general way, would that be... For example, one's father maybe has, again, generally speaking, anger issues. Oh, yes. And so, therefore, a child may respond in the same way. Mm-hmm. Maybe not necessarily because that child experienced the same kind of 
trauma or abuse that triggered it in the parent, right. but somehow it's passed on. Right. Right. So then right. it's almost as if we're all not just processing our own stuff, but also familial things as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's an, a family systems approach is strictly biological. Mm-hmm. Um, it it uh, it uh, does not willy-nilly accept uh, Freudian psychological understanding. It, it it looks at things very scientifically, and and it's from uh, the family systems people as well as uh, anthropologists and others who look at human behavior uh, that we're discovering that some of these uh, tendencies, emotional tendencies, uh, may be transmitted through our DNA right. so, so that uh, they, they get embedded uh, in the DNA uh, and, and become kind of an expectation that this is the way we're supposed to behave. Right. Uh, but logically, uh, where do parents learn how to? Where do parents learn how to parent? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Usually from their parents, right. um, and and so that's just a reasonable understanding of how it gets transmitted from one generation to another. But it's also, I mean, it's that. But I also remember you talking to me about when big events occurred. Yes. Like for example, you know, something. Uh, if you lose a spouse, and that occurred in the spring. And then yes. as the years go by, if depression comes around in the spring, it could be that it's from them. Well, how do you approach that? I don't That's, want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. Well, that, and there again, family systems is helpful because one of its techniques is to do a genogram. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so you look at major events like that. Uh, they become nodal events, and and you can pretty well predict that every year at a certain time, uh, the emotional brain is going to emote the sense of loss and grief, uh, and 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 the individual may not remember, uh, or may not even think about just wondering why in the hell do I feel so badly? Right. You know, uh, uh, it's. And that can make a person feel crazy. Yes. That makes it worse because then they don't know why. And they just have this and people say, you shouldn't feel that way. Right. And then it makes it worse. That's right. That compounds it. Yeah. Um, but and, so, and so that was something that I think that you did, again, with Melissa and I when we did the premarital counseling. Because mm-hmm. we looked at specific events in, mm-hmm. in our past, but also in our family's past. Right. That way when something came up around that time... Mm-hmm. We wouldn't necessarily blame each other for it, right? You know? Oh, it, yeah. It's it's never that simple, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> many couples, uh, not not you and Melissa, but many couples uh, tend to think that they're angry and upset with one another because of something that just happened. Right. It is never that. Well, an interesting an interesting experience occurred. Um, I might have shared it with you. It was when um, it might have been after Melissa had her bone marrow transplant, and we had that sort of few month window of things being really good. And then one day, I was sitting on the couch meditating, and it occurred to me that many of the ways that I treated Melissa that were um, difficult or I don't know more of a pain in the ass to her than anything else. It occurred to me the reason I did that was because of an underlying sense of of dread about something that I had no idea what it was about. Yeah. And then she something would occur within our life, and I would say, "Well, it must be that." So I would attribute this underlying sense of dread to something that happened right now. Exactly. And really, it had nothing to do with it. Exactly. And that was a mind blowing experience. And mm-hmm. I told Melissa, and she looked at me, and she said, "You finally figured that out." <laughs> <laughs> Did she walk you along the side of the head? No, but she was she was she was profoundly grateful. I'm sure. But that's the kind of thing that I don't. I, I think many people don't understand because even at that point in time, personally, I had been meditating and practicing yoga and doing all these things for at least eighteen, 15, somewhere between sure. fifteen and eighteen years during that time period. And many people think that if you go through a lot of these spiritual types of processes, that that takes care of everything. Mm-hmm. 
and it doesn't. Mm-mm. And you know, I've had conversations with people um, when they ask me about, I have this issue, how should I deal with it? Mm-hmm. And I recommend talking to a counselor. Right. And I tell them it could take months to figure that out. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do the hard work, that's what's going to figure it out for you. Right. And maybe you'll get lucky and you'll meditate enough and 18 years later you'll have that aha moment. Mm-hmm. Or you can get someone to help you do that. But on the other hand, I also encourage them not to become addicted to therapy. Right. Because then it becomes, I don't, well, I mean, I'd like to talk to you about that. But, codependency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But back to the point. Um, so for individuals who have an interest in self-realization, self-actualization, and for those of them who are practicing meditation and doing what they know how to do and what they've been taught to do, mm-hmm. what is a realistic approach to the other part of their life which could relate to those unresolved triggers or unresolved tra- traumas. How, how, what is a realistic way to approach that, to look at that, such that they can continue with their practice while also attending to these other past issues? Right. Uh, well, your suggestion uh, uh, to see a counselor, I think, is an excellent suggestion. The, the emotional brain, uh, the hip hypothalamus and, and all of the nerve centers that are back there, all it knows how to do is emote. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and the negative stuff we experience in life sticks back there. And it doesn't forget it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's always ready at the least little inkling or trigger mm-hmm. to emote. Mm-hmm. And... and uh, and one of the problems in the country today has precisely to do with this problem. Uh, we call it impulse control. Mm-hmm. You know, if I feel a certain way, then I'm justified to, to do whatever I want in reaction to that. Mm-hmm. So if I hate somebody, that means I'm justified to pick up a gun and, and shoot him or her. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and... and one of the helpful things about the counseling process is to begin to realize that the difference between the function of the emotional brain, which is constantly emoting, and, and if it's been through very traumatic stuff that has stuck, um, is, is, is to become aware of all of the factors that are stored up in there, uh, and then begin to use the cognitive parts of the brain uh, to take a look at that, and at the same time, to think of the emotional brain as that little child that keeps wanting to throw a tantrum. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you do with a child when it's throwing a tantrum? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, different situations merit different techniques, but one of the things you do is you love and embrace that child, and you get the cognitive brain to assure that child you're safe now, uh, 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 we will not, together, we will not let you go out of control mm-hmm. because it's not good for mm-hmm. either of us right. if you want to talk about it that way. So uh, recognizing what the emotional brain is doing uh, and, and what the most likely reasons are that it's doing that uh, uh, and even uh, f- feeling some measure of self-pity toward a child that's been abused right. and loving that child. Uh, uh, not, not always an easy thing to do, right. but, but in terms of my experience in working with individuals and privilege of working with them, uh, that kind of approach over time seems to help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but it is time consuming, and our modern world uh, doesn't make much room for time right. to do that kind of work. And when you were talking about the the cognitive portions of the brain, mm-hmm. were you talking more about like the frontal, right, the frontal, the frontal lobes, lobes and, and the rational portions of the brain. Right. So you you get the two of them. They don't normally talk to each other. Right. But but you. Um, 
you know, impulse control means using your reasoning ability uh, to say, you know, it may not be a good idea to pick up that gun. <laughs> right. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean that you don't have the impulse. Right. It means that oh, your exactly. brain kicks in and right. says. When that's one thing I think it's important to keep in mind in meditation. There's a lot of focus on holding your awareness in the frontal part of the brain. Right. And right. by doing that, that develops. Well, impulse control, mm-hmm. positive outlook, you know, forward mm-hmm. thinking. Right. And, but that's the interesting thing I think a lot of meditators come up against is that, like, again, for example, from my experience, I've spent a lot of time meditating on the frontal part of the brain, mm-hmm. which means that when something comes up or a trauma arises, that self-awareness allows me to see it. Yes. And so that gives the opportunity to decide, okay, do I let this express or do I not because it's going to hurt someone or, or something? But it still doesn't change the fact that those triggers are back there. Oh, not at all. You see, like I think yes. that's what I think people have this idea that by by meditating in a certain way that all those triggers will go away. But what happens is meditation gives the ability for self awareness to arise mm-hmm. such that you can recognize the actual work that needs to be done mm-hmm. to work through those triggers exactly to say hey maybe i do need to think long term and talk Mm -hmm. to a counselor or Mm -hmm. someone who does mind body uh psychological approach Mm -hmm. or you know my Mm -hmm. favorite eye movement desensitization reprocess and emdr yeah um but you you can't quite most people have a hard time getting there because they they don't have maybe that development of the frontal regions of the brain to where they can think forward enough to see how that would be helpful. Does this yes. make sense? Yes, it indeed mm-hmm. makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's the task. Uh, and uh, uh, some some of the people I have worked with have, have done beautifully mm-hmm. reaching that kind of awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and they, they are into meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they are continuing to expand their horizons in, turn, in ways that allow them to enjoy the present moment. Right. You know, one thing that I, I've been... It worked for myself again, mm-hmm. but I've been experimenting with sharing it with others mm-hmm. because um, you know, after individuals learned of what I had gone through with uh, Melissa and her leukemia treatment right. and her eventual passing... They've opened up to me a lot more about things that they're going through, yes. and I was somewhat. I didn't. I didn't have that understanding at the time, right. um, and so one thing I've been trying to explain to them is when they become overwhelmed with uh, an emotion or a memory of a trauma. Obviously, I recommend the counseling approach, but I've been trying to encourage them in meditation to try to get as calm as possible in meditation first, mm-hmm. as calm as they can. They don't have to be perfect about it. Mm-hmm. And then take a look at what they're feeling, like the mm-hmm. actual sense of trauma or memory, and then ask themselves, what am I that experiences this? Or what am I that experienced this? Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this because... From my experience, it has been that it, it gives that space for self-awareness, mm-hmm. and it can give the sense of spaciousness such they can realize that what they are, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily defined by traumas or emotions mm-hmm. or memories, that, that there, is a, there can be a sense of um, not detachment in a bad way, but again, mm-hmm. space between what happened and sort of the core of what a person is. Mm-hmm. And, and the more they're able to kind of get that sense of, oh, I am not defined by this. It doesn't change the fact that it happened. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change the fact that it's p- painful or not. But it gives them a little bit of space to say, oh, yes, this happened to me. But now I have some perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Um, does that seem like... Well, I think it's excellent. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's... Mm-hmm. Again, it's developing self-awareness, right, which helps to resolve the root cause of pain, right, right, right. Yeah, when when a when trauma gets triggered, um, it it can be overwhelming. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely overwhelming, mm-hmm. and and um, 
Well, I, I told you about my meltdown with the Kavanaugh elevation. Right. And, and I was by myself in the family room, so no one else got to hear my, my profanity. <laughs> but I realized I needed to do something or, or I was going to lose it completely. And, and, and so I went upstairs to where my study is, sat down at the computer, and just my fingers just went. Um, uh, and uh, typing, type, yeah, typing um, into the word processor, yeah, uh, and 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 I think I ended up with three pages of single spaced uh, reaction, mm-hmm. uh, which which uh, uh, the, the anger expressed in terms of all of the episodes of uh, abuse, uh, especially by the community in which I grew up. Uh, And uh, at the end uh, of doing that, I had calmed down, uh, looked it over, thought, well, yeah, that's the way it was, Mm -hmm. and uh, saved it. And, uh, and and spent some time working through mm-hmm. all of that flood, that deluge of uh, uh, very painful memories. Mm-hmm. So yeah, take however you do that, whether it's with someone else or, but somehow or other, uh, letting it come out, mm-hmm. letting it come out. And, and then your further step of um, uh, introducing meditation in that process uh, is a way of calling on the universe uh, to help mm-hmm. embrace you in the moment. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's excellent. Mm-hmm. So from there, you know, when you're thinking about that, because this comes up too, when, when do you just say that's enough? And I mean, we've talked about this before. I think over lunch, where you know I talked about losing Melissa and just crying nonstop, sure. and every now and then it felt like, look, it's time to just stop. Mm-hmm. In the sense of when you see a kid who's crying, who's had something bad happen, but you see he's crying. He doesn't really look like he's got his heart into it. He's just sort of still doing it. You know, and yeah. and this comes up again because of the dream I had mentioned, where I said that uh, I had seen Melissa, and uh, I had a sense in the dream it was a sense of that all of my sadness was almost like poisoning her spirit or something yeah. of this nature. Nice, that's so, nice. So it's not I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to push um, stopping the emoting or stopping no, no. the process too no, soon, no. right? But some people I have met and talked to who. They continue with the therapy and they continue with the process, mm-hmm. but it's like they never just decide, okay, this was not a good thing, right? But They're, now I've got to move on and live. So how how does one? How does one terminate? <laughs> well, yeah, when do you? When when does that? You know, when does that? When does that moment? It's probably different for everybody, I'm right, sure. But right. at some point in time, right, it seems like it has to come. Right. Right. So is it something that one should try to to really? decide upon or is it something that really will just happen mm-hmm. when it happens mm-hmm. you know? um, well, the, in counseling that's known as the termination process okay. when you work toward okay when these were the goals we set out uh, anything left undone and, and you take several weeks to do this just to be sure because sometimes through that other things occur um, and um, and yeah I'm ready to move on mm-hmm. uh, um, I'm, what comes to mind is uh, Joanna Greenberg's I Never Promised You a Rose Garden mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, her real name was Hannah Green but that was a pseudonym for for the story of her struggle with uh, multiple personality disorder, and uh, 
And she checked in after she had been discharged mm -hmm. uh, and started to talk about some of the frustrations. And, and her doctor said, uh, I never promised you a rose garden. Mm -hmm. In other words, the sadness will persist. Right. Uh, the hurt will be there. Uh, but you understand it. You can move on uh, uh, and be the wonderful person you are. Uh, and she certainly was. She, she's written a number of works under her real name after that. Really wonderful literature. So uh, evidently... Uh, well, so what do you do? Again, this comes back to... Jim and I, by the way, uh, I've known him since almost 20 years now, is it, I think? Uh, something like that. It's been a while. Mm -hmm. um, way back when I was an AmeriCorps volunteer. Oh, yes. He, he my, <laughs> you loved it, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> he was my, my, one and only, uh, uh, my one and only volunteer. For, for, um, but anyway, we became friends. Um, mm -hmm. And so when, I, when we lived in West Virginia previously, we had lunch together a lot. And then right. moved to Asheville. So it was only whenever I came to visit, we'd meet at uh, Cracker Barrel. Cracker Barrel. Um, right. But now I'm back in West Virginia. So we have... Probably once a week sushi, right? Uh, sushi uh, lunches. Lunches. So we yeah. talk a lot, and um, I I'd, I'd been talking this past probably two weeks ago I think um, about how I I had a sense of a great void of depression on the way mm -hmm. as though it was coming, mm -hmm. and I was explaining how you know yes all of this stuff has happened in my life. But I've, I've met a wonderful woman, um, mm -hmm. very compatible. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, just I just told her last night, <laughs> I said, uh, you know, it, it's odd. Hanging out with you every day kind of seems like a party. <laughs> I, I said, well, I said almost every day. <laughs> she looked at me. Yeah, you got to be real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she, she stopped a minute and she said, well, I guess that's better than every day being like a nightmare. And I was like... Yeah, that's true. But in our conversation, the reason that part of the story is important is because despite the fact that there are good things happening in my life, I'm not ignoring the crap and the painful things that occurred. And so I said, I have these moments where I look around and I see you know, the fact we just planted fruit trees and mm -hmm. it's a beautiful spring and that's wonderful. these good things are there. But there's still this pain of loss of you know a relationship that I was in for 23 years um, since I was a teenager and a few other things, which those of you who are listening might know what I'm talking about, and I'm not going to get into those. Um, but there was a sense of despite all this positive, like a great depression was actually on its way. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned that th that's what the emotional brain does, mm -hmm. that if, if you've been in a space of profound difficulty mm -hmm. and then good things start to come around, right. the emotional brain still wants you to think right. that something horrible is happening. Yeah, don't ignore me. Yeah. And so <laughs> even though something horrible is not happening right now, mm -hmm. the only way it can get you to feel bad again is to think, oh, it's coming. Mm -hmm. So that, that, I mean, that brings me to, is it just having more awareness of the fact that that's the case? Because you telling me that helped out a lot. Mm -hmm. Because that way, whenever the issue would arise again, and I would have the sense mm -hmm. of dread or the void come up, mm -hmm. I'd say, oh, all right, it's the emotional brain, so, you know, I'm just going to go cut the grass. Mm -hmm. And it would pass. Mm -hmm. um, that's a good, good technique, yeah. Is that, I'm sure it's different in all situations, but... Mm -hmm. Is it just the self-awareness you need that that's the way your body is working? Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you, after all that's happened, have the, ex have the worry about the other shoe dropping? Right. I mean, that's only natural. Mm -hmm. um, good grief when <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're involved in, in such fulfilling life circumstances right now. Uh, and, oh, this can't be real, the other shoe's going to drop. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's the emotional brain. <laughs> as, as if it's the great trickster right. who's going to trip you up. Um, and, and once again, uh, hey, I know you're there. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you're hurt. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, 
bring it on, we'll handle it. Right. Well, how, uh, you know, we had, I talked about the presence process with you, too. Right. Uh, so that, right. the book, uh, The Presence Process by Michael Brown. Right. And you've gone through the process, right? Yes, I have. Yeah. Um, and I recommend it often on my uh, YouTube channel, so I'll probably do it a lot on this podcast, yeah, too. extremely helpful book. Yeah. How do you determine, like in that book, it discusses how when you have an, a, a, an emotional difficulty, once you get into it a ways, it's, it's not something you start out with. Mm-hmm. But once you get into the process, um, you start recognizing when you start to feel emotionally triggered, mm-hmm. you think about it and you, you focus on it, but then you ask yourself, when was the last time I felt this way? Oh, I've forgotten that. Yeah, and then you mm-hmm. keep asking that. Like you, you keep going back, okay, I felt this way three days ago. All right, mm-hmm. well, when was the last time well, before that? And you keep following it back until you can't remember anymore. Mm-hmm. So you see sort of like the thread of this, the, the same feeling, how it moves mm-hmm. through similar circumstances. Mm-hmm. When really the root of that might be that, that, la- that ultimate mm-hmm. first memory mm-hmm. that you can pull up. Mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting. I had forgotten that. Yeah. It's been a while since and, I've read the book. And so. I, felt, I found that always interesting because, you know, when I first did that, uh, when the worst thing that occurred to me was my cat was dying, <laughs> but I was <laughs> devastated. And I remember um, uh, Melissa coming home, and, and it was on the week where it says, feel everything and just let it out. Just don't mm-hmm. even censor it. Just whatever comes up during this week, you just let it out. Mm-hmm. And I remember Melissa came home and I was sitting on the edge of the ottoman just crying. And it was because I thought the cat, the problem I had with the cat. And she looked at me and she said, I think this is about more than the cat, huh? <laughs> and so then the next week, I think, if I recall correctly, was to remember, well, when was the last time you felt that way? Mm-hmm. And that took me through a whole process of multiple experiences where that same feeling was there mm-hmm. until I finally got back to what I consider to be like a root sense of loss or separation. Okay. Uh, so yeah. the reason I'm describing this is I think that's useful, but how do we determine the difference between uh, the fact that you're in a good place and now the emotional brain is just triggering because it doesn't know what else to do mm-hmm. versus, well, wait a minute, stop and go back through to see mm-hmm. is this something further back mm-hmm. you understand the difference mm-hmm. like one is the absence of something occurring causing the disease and the other is sort of like that subliminal trigger right. um, how, how do you think you how does one kind of separate those out or is that even possible because if there is just the now then mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. gosh um I don't know. Or does it even matter? I yeah, mean, that's really... Yeah. I'd, I'd have to think about that. Um, hmm. I, I, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> that's what I was wondering. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I thought, you know, you've got some experience on me, so maybe... Right. <laughs> um... How to respond to that? Um, oh gosh. Hmm. I, other than what I've already said, yeah, I, I can't think of another way to come at it. Uh, well, I mean, I always wrestle with that idea of does it really matter whether it happened in the past or whether you're feeling it right now? Because you're still feeling it. That's correct. Right now. That's right. You know. It. Yeah, and 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 that's that is the emotional brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, all it knows uh, is right now. Right. When when it's emoting uh, negative stuff, uh, it's acting as if. It's happening. It's happening. Right. And and uh, and any technique that can um, hold that part of oneself in a loving way mm-hmm. helps. Uh, I think uh, 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 presence. What the presence process? 
presence process helped with that. Those meditation techniques in the presence process mm -hmm. really helps. You know, those 15-minute meditations every day with, with different... Uh, uh, I can't think of the word. Like the affirmations, is that? that right, with yeah. different affirmations. Mm -hmm. And then, then, then the emotional stuff comes up, or at least it did for me right. in that meditative process of completing that. Um, and, and you see it in a different way. Well, yeah, yeah, that actually, I remember with the presence process, there was a part where you, uh, you would take like a warm bath. Right. To kind of get you in your body, right? And I've been thinking about that a lot more because there's a, there's another uh, far more extreme meditation method, uh, the, the Wim Hof method. Oh. And what what he does because he he lost his wife to suicide, Ooh. and he had I think four kids and a lot of depression, and um, he started taking. If I, I don't remember the exact story. Someone else can Google it. Um, but he developed a technique where you essentially subject your body to like ice baths. Mm -hmm. And and I thought about that a little bit more. And even, you know, this past summer, which was uh, not too long after Melissa had passed, I had mm -hmm. exercised often in my life. Mm -hmm. And I decided that, well, I need to do some different kind of body movement as a, a, in, in contrast to the kind of um, qigong i would do or mm -hmm. yoga practice i would do mm -hmm. because that that the way my body and nerve system was arranged around the time the relationship i had with melissa uh was set by these patterns i did this particular kind of exercise right and so it came to my mind well i should do something use my body differently to build the body differently mm -hmm. to break up that process and mm -hmm. so i took up stand-up paddle boarding because it was oh. ra radically different oh but the, the, the Wim Hof method where you do cold water, I also thought that maybe that was a way to break up the body's habit of feeling a certain way. That's interesting, yes. So you feel a certain way, and then you take these extreme temperature differences. Right. And, and I don't know how it works this way or not, but it makes sense that if you change the body somehow... It will... You re some you rework the reset brain. Reset the brain. Yeah, reset the brain. Okay. Th that's also the same uh, theory I think behind um, like microdosing with psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Again, microdosing here was what we're talking about. <laughs> um, but the idea is that when you do that, if you continue to live your life the way you always have, doing the same routines, but you do this microdosing because what it does is it changes the way that your brain communicates with itself. Interesting. And then yeah. also breaks the, the habits or patterns of trauma or, di or difficulty. That is interesting. Right. Yeah. And so uh -huh. that maybe that's why exercise is so important to work through trauma, because it, it gets the body moving. Right. You know. Right. From a yoga perspective, they would say that doing intensive exercises moves the prana or the life right. force. Right. Which is where certain issues and traumas are stored. Right. Um, but, you know, this whole mind-body approach to things, um, it, it makes a lot of sense. But like everything else, it also takes a lot of work. Right, right. But the question comes down, would you rather take nine months to a year or two years doing that? Or do you want to live your whole life run by... The emotions. Right, the past traumas and past mm, emotions. Exactly right. That, and... And that would be the easier path. Um, sort of. Um, yeah, it would be very costly, however. Yeah, right. Um, another technique from mind-body medicine that I've experienced is chronic breathing. Mm. Um, and, and Are we chronically breathing now? <laughs> it's an exercise <laughs> where you're, you're breathing much more differently than we are right now. Okay. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, interesting technique, and, and when I experienced it during the mind-body training, uh, it was interesting how stuff from the emotional brain surfaced. Right. Uh, so it was there to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. uh, what was that called again? Did you say chronic breathing? Chronic breathing, I think is the name what of was, it. What was the... That with the flapping of the... Okay. arms and, and breathing for six minutes through the nose. If you breathe through the mouth, you'll 
pass out right. through the nose very, very, very quickly. And what was the training again that you did with that? Um, it was tr- uh, training in mind-body medicine out of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in Washington, D.C. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that that was an interesting mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, since so we're getting close to the end of our, our hour... Um, mm-hmm. Has it been that long? It's been just about. <laughs> uh, the... The thought that kind of comes to me at the end is, you know, earlier I was asking, when do you decide that it's enough and time to move on? And the way I'm thinking about this now is, um, mm-hmm. how do I want to put it? Um, let's see. So maybe this is true, maybe this is not true. But from my perspective, you know, I, I felt that up until Melissa got sick, that I had a really good life. Mm-hmm. And it was. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have to deal with a lot of problems that many people I now learn deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that, a, a lot of uh, mental or philosophical approach that, that kind of came from that was, I consider it a new age approach where if you just get your thoughts right, everything will work out. Mm-hmm. If you just... You know, do this one thing right, follow the right you know, mm-hmm. health protocol, it's all mm-hmm. going to be fine. Like, it's in a sense magical thinking. Mm-hmm. When I've lear- what I've learned over the past three years is shit happens in the world. Exactly. Sometimes beautiful things occur. Sometimes horrible things occur. Sometimes annoying things occur. Mm-hmm. Sometimes mildly pleasant things occur. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's, there's a whole host of different experiences a person has. Right. And... My thought about why people don't move on, I'm wondering, because maybe this was true for me, uh, is it that they're thinking, well, I can move on when everything's perfect again? Oh. You see? Yeah. And since nothing's ever going to be perfect, perfect. ever, yeah. period. Why, why move on? <laughs> right. So, you know, when, and I've seen this a lot with people who practice meditation, mm-hmm. interested in yoga, they have an idea that if they just meditate right or mm-hmm. practice right or mm-hmm. follow the philosophy right that they will make it through life unscathed right so from your perspective again you've you've got uh um, quite a bit more years on me working with people and being involved in mm-hmm. uh helping people get through things mm-hmm. how if you could communicate to people look not 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 taking the Buddha's words that that, that life is suffering or, or is it attachment to life is suffering but anyway you get the idea suffering uh, is in right. there somewhere it's, right how would you if you had an audience that would actually listen to what you're going to say mm. and they're getting ready to go into the world uh, you know maybe they've had a good teenage life but they're getting ready to go into the world where there's change and upheaval mm-hmm. and good things and bad things mm-hmm. can you think of any way to explain to them that sometimes life is going to hurt, mm-hmm. but that that's just that's just part of being alive. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm trying to? Yes. Like, how do you inspire them to keep living without mm-hmm. without the idea of searching for the magic key to make life perfect? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're asking for. The wisdom of the ages. Yeah. Well, remember, remember, you have an audience that's actually going to listen to what you have to say. So. Oh, thank you. That helps a lot. Yeah, they're not. They're not. They're not just going to look at you and scratch their chin and say, "Yeah, well, uh-huh. that's nice," but yeah. like they're actually going to listen to it and right. apply it. If, if there's uh-huh. something that. Well, I. One thing that comes to mind is something I said earlier. Um, the line from uh, uh, Hannah Green's book, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Um, That's life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we are far more capable than we think we are. Uh, Sometimes what cripples us is the worry or the anticipation that something's going to be really awful Mm -hmm. and we won't be able to survive it. I've had clients in the past who have felt that way. Uh, But people basically are far more resilient 
than, than we sometimes think. Uh, we experience the worst that life can throw at us, uh, but there are resources available to us. Uh, uh, for some people, faith is helpful. Uh, I find myself moving more and more in the direction of a kind of universal unity where we're all a part of this together. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, actually do feel uh, and am aware of how the universe, uh, how life uh, supports life. Uh, even to the point of saying with Ken Wilber, uh, death is not. Uh, life in this moment always will be. And we'll do the best with it out of our resiliency. We know how to do. Well, that sounds like a good note to end on. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Jim. Hey, this has been fun. (laughs) Maybe we'll do it again sometime. (laughs) Well, if you think there's good reason to. Okay. (laughs) There's enough tea. No, I'm dry. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much, Jim. Sure. My pleasure.